invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 27. Now we're continuing in our Passion Week series. That's the week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And this is Palm Sunday. So uh, this is the day that we traditionally remember Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem as king. And they yelled, Hosanna in the highest. And they laid down palm branches for him to enter in to Jerusalem. Here it is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming. And we wait for that day when he comes on the clouds of heaven. Amen? Amen. I can, I, 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 the older I get, the more excited I get for the possibility that that may happen in our lifetime. Imagine what the disciples thought at this point. That Jesus of Nazareth, performing miracles, rising people from the dead, calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders of the day, has now come into Jerusalem during the Passover period when the world would converge on Jerusalem for the Passover observances. Here it is. The king is now entering Jerusalem. And then he cleanses the temple. Surely this is it. Surely the king has come and he will make all things new. But then a chilly wind begins to blow. And he prepares a Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room and explains to them what is about to happen to him through this meal. That, that Passover meal we, we thought we well, talked about two weeks ago commemorated God's faithfulness to Israel when he delivered them from the hands of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb which they would smear on the doorpost of their house, and the angel of death passed over them, which occasioned their deliverance from Egypt and their, event, and their eventual travel into the promised land. So this, this Passover meal commemorated that. But Jesus takes that Passover meal that commemorated God's faithfulness to Israel, God's protection from death, and God's deliverance from slavery. And he imports all of that meaning onto his own body and blood. Then Jesus, like we heard last week from Pastor Patrick, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, prays that the cup would be removed from him, and then soldiers come, a great crowd of soldiers come. He is betrayed by Judas, he is arrested. And now everything the disciples thought was about to happen, the king of kings coming, has begun to be unraveled. What I'd like to do is start in verse 24 of Matthew 27. And this passage now recounts the last few hours of Jesus' life, delivering to be, his deliverance to be executed. He is then beaten, mocked, crucified, and then dies. Now, as Christians, we understand. We understand that something more than just the death of Jesus of Nazareth happened 
on this day. That's, that certainly is what happened on earth. But I want to look at this passage with an eye towards what, what happened in the heavens when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Because the, there's a, we live in a two-stage reality where there is stuff of earth, but there, there is also spiritual truths and metaphysical realities that we cannot see. That's the, there is a theology behind everything in Scripture. So what happened? Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross, a Roman cross, in A.D. 33, April 3rd. But what happened in the heavens? So before we read the passage, I just want to set the scene here. It's Friday morning. Jesus was crucified on Thursday evening. He was arrested in the garment. He wasn't crucified, rather. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday evening. His disciples fled from him, and then the Jewish council delivered him to Pontius Pilate to be crucified or tried to be crucified. Now. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, from the years 26 AD to 36 AD, and his job was to keep the peace. There were riots breaking out in Jerusalem during this time, during this period, false messiahs uh, creating uprisings against Rome, and Pilate's job was to keep the peace by force or diplomacy. Now, if he, if he saw an uprising, he could crush it with military force. Or he could try to use diplomacy to keep the peace. And that's what we see going on here. So Pilate, in the passage we're about to look at, is confronted with a potential riot forming. There's an angry mob calling for Jesus of Nazareth's crucifixion. And I find it so interesting that in the Jewish court on Thursday evening, they tried Jesus for blasphemy. But in the Roman court, they tried Jesus for being an insurrectionist and a threat to Rome. Because blasphemy wouldn't hold up in a Jewish court. Um, if you turn to, briefly, Matthew 26, 59, you'll see what the Jewish court, the council, the, San, the Sanhedrin, charged Jesus with. In verse 59, it says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false wit witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. By the way, that term, you have said so, puts the onus on the other person. And what Jesus is saying is, your very actions are demonstrating that I am the Christ. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Quoting Daniel 7, that figure who approaches the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. 
blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. So they charge him with blasphemy in the Jewish court. But in the Roman court, when they bring him to Pilate, they charge him with being someone called the king of the Jews, someone who might pose a threat to Rome. One commentator put it like this. At the outset, the charges are laid before Pontius Pilate by prosecutors, and the leaders have by necessity twisted their own verdict from blasphemy to high treason by centering on the royal aspects of the messianic claim, thereby making Jesus king of the Jews to make it sound as if Jesus is plotting sedition against Rome, ironically, the very aspect he has denied. So you see what's happening here. They are portraying Jesus as a threat to Rome, an insurrectionist who might lead a revolt, just like other messianic pretenders have in the past, and they used that accusation to pressure Pilate to have him crucified. In John 19, 12, we see the crowd saying, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar's. Anyone who makes himself king opposes Caesar. So they're portraying Christ as opposing Caesar and perhaps someone who may cause a riot because of his following. So this is where this is the scene that we're entering into Friday morning, AD 33, April 3rd. Read with me. Matthew 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now Pilate finds nothing wrong with Jesus deserving death. Yeah, he's been charged with blasphemy, and they, they say he's an insurrectionist, but Pilate sees no evidence of this. He knows the real reason that they want Jesus crucified. In verse 18, it says, um, or is it 17? Uh, they, he says, that it, it, oh, 18, yeah. He knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. So he knows they're envious. Everyone has gone to follow Jesus at this point. And he's usurping the Jewish leaders of the day. And so what do they do? The Jewish leaders and the crowd assume responsibility for Jesus' blood. And they said, his blood be on our heads and on our children. And then Jesus is scourged. Here's a, um, a description of what scourging is um, in a commentary by Don Carson. The whip was the dreaded flagellum made by plating pieces of bone of lead into leather thongs. The victim was stripped and tied to a post, and the severe beating not only reduced the flesh to a bloody pulp, but could open up the body, 
until the bones were visible and the organs exposed. Flogging as an independent punishment not infrequently led to death. Now this is, this is weighty stuff. And, and there's, there's a sense in which we take no pleasure in looking at this passage. This is brutal, this is gory, this is bloody. But there's another, much more glorious sense in which we are preaching Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this bloody massacre is the way that your soul was bought out of sin and death. Now, with that being said, I do, and in light of the horror of scourging and the crucifixion that Jesus is about to suffer, in light of this, verse 25 is bone-chilling for me. When the Jews say, his blood be on us and on our children, does does that not send shivers down your spine to hear someone call Jesus' blood upon them? You know what I, if I were there during that time, what I would say? I would say, let's call down fire on them. And let's destroy them for saying such blasphemous and flippant things. That would be my word. But you know what scripture tells us? That Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, if you remember, in Genesis... God says, Cain, what have you done? I hear your brother's blood calling to me from the ground. Implying that Abel's blood called out for guilt and condemnation for Cain. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because in that same crowd who called for Jesus' crucifixion had an opportunity to be forgiven soon after. In Acts 2, we see Peter preaching the sermon to these very people. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. That's my place here. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, When the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus' blood did not call out for their condemnation. They called it upon their heads, But it was almost like the Passover lamb 
the blood of the Passover lamb being smeared on the doorpost of their heart. Because what they meant as a curse upon themselves, Jesus means as a blessing for them. That is an example of the love of Christ. So, this, however, is only the beginning of Jesus' suffering. So it continues. The next stage here is that Jesus is delivered to a battalion of soldiers who then strip him, spit on him, and then mock him. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting it together, made a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head, and putting a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before them, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They took the reed and struck him on the head. Now, the whole battalion means 600 soldiers. So this was not just a few people. A battalion was 600 soldiers mocking Jesus, making, fashioning a crown of thorns, placing it on his head, spitting on him, and mocking him as king of the Jews. Now, what is the reason for this cruelty? I think, I think if somebody is in this line of work, you start to become hardened towards things. You've seen people beaten already. You've seen men crucified already. And so you start to become hardened towards this. And that, I would say, is the physical human explanation of their vitriol and their cruelness towards Jesus. Um, The other explanation is that the Roman soldiers are simply acting out unwittingly, whatever God had predestined to take place. Because what is ironically happening here is Jesus is actually being crowned as king. And he is actually being hailed as king. So we are supposed to understand the irony of what is taking place. Jesus is being crowned. Now, think back again to Genesis. What was the very symbol of the fall? The very symbol of the fall in Genesis, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God said, you shall eat of the ground in pain. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life, and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. See, the very symbol of the curse were thorns and thistles, and that is being placed upon the head of Christ. So they have unwittingly taken the very symbol of the cursed and placed it on the head of Christ. That illustrates the spiritual fact that the curse itself is being placed on Jesus during his crucifixion. And the Roman soldiers are simply acting out, yes, they're acting in cruelty, but they are acting out precisely what God has intended as a symbol for creation's curse to rest on the sun. But there's still more suffering. Verse 32. And they went out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, 
And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over them there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The place of the skull is a mountain right outside Jerusalem that sort of looks like a skull. And it was outside the city walls, but visible enough for everyone to see the men who were crucified as insurrectionists and rebels against Rome. Gaul, by the way, would have, is not, they weren't just giving him something to drink. Gaul was undrinkable. It was almost like poison. So it was not a gesture of compassion. It was a gesture of torment and mockery towards Jesus. And when they divided his garments, that means they stripped him completely. And so you have to understand the scene here of Jesus already being opened up, his skin filleted, perhaps bones exposed, beaten, spitten on, mocked. Nails are then driven into probably his wrists and his ankles to nail him to a cross. And the cross at this time could take three different forms. It could be an X, it could be a T, or it could be kind of that classic cross symbol. And that's what we see here. The classic cross symbol, we know that because in verse 7, 20, 37, they put a sign above his head, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. So you have to appreciate at this point the, I want to say embarrassment, but also the humility that Jesus is enduring. On a cross, beaten, exposed, naked, Mocked. Now, it's, it's at this point where Jesus passes two final tests. In verse 38, and this again is bone chilling. The two robbers, then two robbers were crucified next to him. And robber doesn't mean someone who stole a cat. A robber is the same word for Barabbas, who is a murderer. So this is, these are people, these are, these are rebels against Rome who perhaps, mur perhaps murdered, they were killers, and they were being put up as an example. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Where have we heard that taunt before? If you are the Son of God. That is precisely what Satan tempts Jesus with in Matthew 4. If you really are the Son of God, tell these bread, tell this stone to become bread. If you really are the Son of God, cast yourself down, show your power, show who you are. 
You see, Satan is tempting Jesus to unfulfill his ministry. And right here at the apex, at almost the fulfillment of his ministry, you see the crowd joining their voices to Satan, telling Jesus, if he really is the Son of God, come down from the cross, prove yourself. So we see a demonic presence is there as well. Come down from the cross, and ironically, it's by staying on the cross that he would achieve salvation for the world. By the way, and I know I've mentioned this before, you know that song, it was my sin who it was my sin that held him there. Your sin had no power over Christ on the cross. Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I give it down. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus said, do you not think I could call 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me? Jesus could definitely have come down from the cross. But it was by staying on the cross that he paid for our sins. It was not your sin that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love that held him on the cross for you. So they ridicule him, mock him. And finally, the greatest test in verse 45, starting in verse 45. Now, in the sixth hour, there was darkness over the face of the land. And until the ninth hour, that's 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness means judgment in the scripture. When darkness comes, that means the face of the Father has stopped shining on the world. That means that God has looked away. He's removed his grace and his mercy. So darkness has now fallen on this place. And we see Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, crying out, saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was what was in the cup when Jesus said, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. It was being forsaken of the Father. We don't know exactly what this means, but we know that something awful happened. There was a rupture between the Father and the Son so that we can be reconciled to the Father by the Son. And there is a mystery here, but this was the center of Christ's suffering. It wasn't just the mocking. It, ju it wasn't just the beating. It, just, it wasn't just the humiliation of being on the cross. It wasn't just the satanic temptation. It was the father forsaking his son in love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. A beautiful verse, but in order for that to be accomplished, something horrible happened. The son was forsaken. And we say, well, how can... 
the son being forsaken for a few hours pay an eternal weight of our sin? And I, I, my answer is that Jesus suffered qualitatively the eternity of suffering that you and I deserve. So there's a difference between qualitative and quantitative suffering. And I think the quality of Christ's suffering was so great, it is almost unspeakable. And then he yields up the spirit. And Jesus of Nazareth dies on the cross. Now, I just want to reflect for a moment on this event. What does it mean to be lifted, nailed to a cross and lifted up on a cross? For the Romans, when they saw Jesus of Nazareth there, being lifted on the cross means that this person was being made an example out of. This is what happens to kings of the Jews, in other words. That's why they had king of the Jews above his head. So you want to revolt? This is what happens to your king. That's what it meant to Romans. For the Jews... To be lifted up on a cross meant that this person was under the curse of God. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, A hanged man is cursed by God. We see Paul saying that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So for Romans, this means this man is an example and a warning to everyone. For Jews, it meant that Jesus was cursed and forsaken of God. And In a sense, that is true. But in a redemptive sense, in a glorious sense, Jesus must be lifted up. He must be hoisted up. He must be lifted on the cross because that means that he is becoming the one that all men can look up to for healing and salvation. I want to go to just, you don't have to turn there, but John 3, 14, 15. Here's what Jesus says about his being lifted up on a cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? That story of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness is from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And that talks about a time when God sent snakes, fiery serpents, upon the people of Israel. And they were biting people, and they were poisonous snakes, evidently, and people were dying. So God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and hold it up, and whoever looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. Now, that's what Jesus is applying to himself. So I must be lifted up just like that bronze snake. But I always wondered, why does God tell Moses to make a snake to look at, of all things? I mean, wasn't it it a snake that tempted Eve in the garden? (laughs) And It is snakes that Egypt worshipped as gods. So why would God use a snake as a symbol for healing of all things? Why a snake? I believe the answer is because God is a redeemer of the devices of Satan. And he is repurposing what Satan has stolen and using it for his redemptive activity. 
And so he uses what Satan has taken for his ends. Now, a cross for many years was a sign of horror and curse. And now for 2,000 years, the cross has been a symbol of God's love and forgiveness because God, just like the snake, he has repurposed these symbols for his glory. And now the cross is a sign of God's forgiveness in Christ because God is a redeemer of even symbols. Now, the Lord chastened me this week because I wanted to tell you something you didn't know about the cross. I wanted to, I wanted to tell you some kind of deep, complex, theological thing that happened on the cross. But you already know it. You already know it. And I think as Christians, we need to simply embrace the simplicity, the beauty, and the horror of the cross at the same time. Again, Paul said, this is foolishness to some people. To other people, this is a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We can glory in the simplicity of Jesus dying for our sins, raising again. And if we believe in him, we will have eternal life with him forever. That is a simple message and one we cling to. One we cling to. And it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. And so what happened in the heavens when Jesus died? Here's the one, the one spiritual reality that we know from Scripture. What happened in the heavens when Jesus died? Jesus entered the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, with his own blood to make payment for your sin. Hebrews 9.12 Jesus Christ entered for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus acts as a priest on our behalf, taking his blood to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins, cleansing us, washing us clean. And now we belong to him through faith in Christ. Because, and here's the, here's the other aspect of the cross. The cross paid for your sins, amen? So we know it's a sacrifice, but it's also not just a payment, it's a purchase of you. He purchased you with his own blood. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died, and was raised. As Christians, the cross is horrifying and ugly, yet beautiful and glorious at the same time. And we know that it is that moment that we can go to, we can look at Calvary, we can cast our burdens on the Lord and our sins will be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Once you do that, you are owned by Jesus Christ to live for him, and he promises that since he, you belong to him, that you will be with him forever in his kingdom. That is the simplicity of the cross. And so today, 
Palm Sunday, we understand that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords became a servant for us, suffered on our behalf, was forsaken of this Father, spit, mocked, beated, beaten for you and for me so that we might be reconciled to God. This is the power of God for salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer.